Okay, so sometimes people today wish that today's church was more like the church in the New Testament. Have you ever heard that? I've heard that. And they seem to think that means an ideal state when the church was growing and excited with godliness. And I think these folks may not have read much of the New Testament. If they mean, however, that they wish the church was full of sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2, insistence on our own way, Romans 14, and laziness, 2 Thessalonians 3, 11. Then I guess their wishes come true. And the church is, broadly speaking, not this church, I don't think, but broadly speaking, their wishes have been granted. And some things never change, right? And one of those things is that the church is full of sinners. And what are we to do with that problem? This problem addressed in this text. How should Christians think about handling people in the church who are committed to their sins? Further, in in a situation that we have today, our own context, where very few of us in the Western world, here at least, are likely to face a situation in which people in our churches who are able to work to earn a living would refuse outright to work. What use do we make of these commands against idleness? And that's what we consider tonight. And what I want to say, the main point is... God instituted the church as a community to hold us accountable. God instituted the church as a community to hold us accountable. And we'll think about this in three points. Back to the norm after a few weeks of interesting divergence. Three points, the problem, the principle, and the prospect. And so first, we're going to think about the problem So, this point is meant to outline the issue that Paul addressed in these verses. So, verses 6 to 8, if you look there, say, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. So clearly the problem was people were not working. We see that from a a pretty general reading of the text. You don't have to have theological training of any sort to see that here. There have been several attempts to explain this idleness though. And I think that's an interesting thing for us to take up for a minute. So some argue that some of these people in Thessalonica quit working because they had misunderstood doctrines about Christ's return. So if you think about the past two chapters, they've been largely about Christ's second coming. And so some of these people had thought, apparently mistakenly, that Christ had already come or would certainly come any second. I mean, within the foreseeable future. And they had no question that that was going to happen now in their lifetime, in the in the days just ahead. Others uh, 
say that many in the ancient world lived under a system of patronage, wherein a wealthy patron, you know, persons, uh, socialite in the community supported others off his own wealth in exchange for social honor and pedigree. And Paul would then, in this case, be addressing people who should quit living utterly freely and contribute to society in some way. They were able to work. They were just not doing it. Lastly, a third suggestion is that some people in Thessalonica were just lazy. All three options are possible. Uh, And actually, we could even hold all three of those things together. But even if we accept one or several of those explanations, take your pick. I think I think some combination of all of them is likely true. We can still press a bit deeper into the actual problem based on explicit statements in our text. I have this weird way of approaching things where I just want to look at what the Bible said. (laughs) So there are three pivotal verses within this passage that show us what's at stake. So verse 6, so I'm going to, I'm going to hop through verse 6, 10, and 14. That's, that's where we're going. And read those for you. So verse 6 says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition received from us. Then verse 10, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. Finally, we read in verse 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Uh, do you see the problem already? I mean, so, so, so we gather here that Paul and the apostolic team had always I mean, since the time they were with the Thessalonians, always made biblical commands more than clear. And yet, there were some who refused to follow them. So so intentional, at least knowing, if not intentional, disobedience is the issue. That's the thing at stake. So... Now, you might be wondering, if, if that's what I think is going on here, if that's, that's the problem, why did I even bother mentioning those, those other explanations if, if this committed disobedience is, is clearly the issue? The reason why I think it's worth telling you the way that other people have thought about the options that explain why these people are being idle, why that's useful, is that people, even Christians rarely outright say, I'm just committed to disobeying God's express commands. you're, You're not likely to encounter that very often. We tend to find creative ways to explain our own disobedience. And that's, that's not a new phenomenon, is it? You know, if we, if we think back to our series that Reverend Pearson did, on the fall, did Adam not point his finger at Eve when he sinned? Genesis three twelve. Did Eve not immediately blame the serpent? Genesis three thirteen. The Thessalonians were unlikely to admit 
that they just didn't want to keep God's commands. More likely, they would excuse bad practice with abused theology. So they might have argued that they were just living according to their expectation of Christ's immediate coming. I'm just practically cashing out my doctrine, Paul. They might have said that they were living off the wealth of patrons so that they could free up time to do Christian activities. Possibly, I don't know, I'm speculating about that one. Maybe they just said, since God wired them with a lazy personality, there was nothing they could do about it. I've heard that, not necessarily lazy, but it's just the way I'm made. Whatever explanation these folks may have offered for their idleness, the problem was still that they rebelled against the commands that came through the apostolic ministry. That was the problem. Explicit disobedience to what they knew was what they should be doing. And that brings us to the second point, the principle. So, it is pretty clear that this passage described a problem where some in the Thessalonian church were not working. Verse 11 says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. But as we've seen, I think that this was simply one instance of a deeper problem wherein people were refusing the known commands of God. It's, it's not that they didn't know better. They did know, and that's the issue. Paul also told this church that if these people would not redirect their lives, that those people must be put out of the church. We see this in verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not according to the tradition you receive from us. And verses 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And this observation about the deeper problem involved establishes a principle for us that when when people will not repent, which is different from when people do something wrong in the first place, when people will not repent, negative church discipline has to be enacted. So, in these verses, we can look a bit past the instance of idleness to see the principle that church discipline must be enacted against people who refuse to repent when they are confronted with their sin. I mean, do you notice that the sin is clear and people are addressing it? Paul knows about it because people have mentioned it. The principle is that we must act to reprimand those who would defy God's express will. And this isn't a mild reprimand, but Paul said... We take, ver- we take action in verse 14 so that he may be ashamed. I mean, that, how does that sit? The, 
The goal to shame someone for their sin likely grinds a little bit against modern sensibilities. Many will suggest, you know, really we just need to love people back into godliness. And the thing is, in a way, that is true. It's what we mean by how we express love. Paul saw no conflict between love and hard-lined discipline. I mean, it's a stern action here as, as shame, public sort of cultural shame in the ancient world would essentially short-circuit someone's entire social life. He thought, though, that this stern action was actually part of loving someone well. As he wrote in verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And so it is part of brotherly affection to go as far as we must to push someone towards godliness. And the principle of of church discipline is also meant for people's good. It is. We think of even Paul's most intense description of negative church discipline. You'll understand what I mean by why I say negative in in a second, but I'll get there. His most intense description of negative church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. The the goal even of publicly turning someone over to Satan when they refuse to to repent is that they might be saved at the day of the Lord. We, we might wonder how that applies to us, though. How, how do we think about this practically in our own significance? And I think we can consider it in a few ways. So, first, which I think is particularly relevant. I mean, this was not planned, but in God's good providence, last week we just had our church membership meeting. And we're thinking about the importance of that. And, and here, God in His goodness has given us this text to think about it. So first, this, this highlights the principle that church membership in, uh, in the structures of discipline that are described here. Many, many people don't like the idea of church membership because they think it's formality is supposedly foreign to the enthusiastic beginnings of the church. But verse 14 says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he might be ashamed. So, so Paul himself, the apostle in this inspired letter, commended a registry of sorts. He, he wanted a list of people, like actually a list. We, we need a way to know Who's a member in good standing? Who is meant to be shamed out of some sin? And who has been handed over to Satan to be treated as an unbeliever? 
people might object that this places us under the judgment of men rather than God, but God is the one who has appointed human leaders over His church to shepherd us. God is the one who is to use men to lead His people in all ages. And God is the one who inspired these texts about church accountability and submitting to our leaders. So, so the first application here is that we, we should value our church membership as a way that God cares for us. The second, this, this text is very much about work ethic, which leads us to think about our own. And I, I struggle with this because I don't know that, I don't know that, this is a, a rabid problem here. And so in some ways I'm flagging this for your attention and awareness. And I hope I'm not putting my finger directly in somebody's eye here. The, the, as we think about our work ethic, though, I mean, the Western world places very little value on lazy people. That's not really any sort of pride of place in today's society. Well, I just really don't do anything. Okay, well, nobody's going to boast about that. It doesn't fly very far. So not many of our churches will struggle often with having people who just outright refuse to work. We, we can think a little harder, though, and I think we need to because social justice is the, the hot topic of the day. So everywhere, admittedly, the New Testament affirms that we should care for the needy. Absolutely. Uh, and there's not nuance to that to one degree, but... In another way, there is some nuance because verse 10 says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So, so if someone is needy, not, not because they cannot work or have genuinely struggled to work, that's a different thing, but because they just refuse to contribute to society, then we're to leave them to the consequences of that. For those who will not work but are busybodies, it says we have a phrase in Alabama, people who piddle. People who are piddling about. So, so we're to let them reap their rewards of piddling if that's what they're doing. I, I think it's, it's really fascinating if you, if you do some looking around about people leaving churches. Pastors report that most often when, when people leave their churches crying that they had never been loved, those people were often the ones who actually took the most and did the least. And wherever we are, personally, I think that that observation points us to think further about our work ethic and not just at our jobs. Because it would be easy for me to sort of punt this off 
to be faithful at your job. That's a metaphor here. I know it's an American football thing. Just thought about that. Sorry. (laughs) What do we expect from the church and what do we give? We should consider well how we contribute in the life of our congregation. So, so if you expect loads of hospitality, but never try to be hospitable, and I get that there are various ways that that works out. I'm not saying be hospitable in all the same way. I know that people have various space capacities and that they have various income capacities. I get that. That is, I'm not saying do hospitality the way that everybody else does. But if you demand it and don't try to be hospitable, that's a, do you see the emphasis I'm trying to put there? You may have a job that you work well at doing, but our text still indicts you. If you demand to be served, but never stoop to serve, then you violate verses 7 to 9. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Now, I'm really not sure exactly where that lands in terms of how deeply that convicts individuals here. But it is something I think that's really important for us to consider as a church and keep at the front of our minds. That as much as it is wonderful to be served, and we should appreciate it when we are, we should also be eager to reciprocate, whatever that looks like. So the principle is that we should work hard to contribute to our communities particularly the church, because God has commanded it and will discipline us for not keeping his commands. That brings us to our third point, the prospect. So, okay, we saw, we saw the problem, right? That people refused to submit to God's express will. In this instance, by not working when they were able. We also saw that this text builds a principle of church discipline for us, wherein those who refuse to keep God's commands, whichever it might be, are to be excluded from full fellowship. But now let's think about the hope offered in this text. And it is a prospect for a thriving community. Now, it It may sound negative to focus on dealing with those who break God's law. But the point of all of this, I think, is actually to build a community that loves God's law. That's why we sort of emphasize needing to keep these commands. Because that would be a beautiful, a wonderful community to join. One that loves keeping the law of God. A church that... Loves to serve the Lord in all ways he has commanded is exactly where we want to be and who we want to be. Church discipline, I mean, so this is why referring to negative previously. Church discipline is not even primarily aimed 
at sanctioning wrongdoing. So that's the negative part when you when you sanction someone for breaking God's law. But church discipline is actually primarily about strengthening beliefs to live well. So the ordinary means of grace in the preached word and properly administered sacraments are like a trip to the gym for faith. You go, you work out, and you get stronger. And that's the point of the ordinary means of grace. It primarily disciplines you like an athlete disciplines their body through exercise. It gets you stronger. The These simple things that God has given us as mechanisms of church discipline are meant to strengthen us as we pursue Him. And so Paul laid out the prospect for a healthy community that loves the Lord Christ. And I think, okay, so now I think it's worth pausing to reflect here at the end of this series. Okay, I'm sort of taking my leave of this one text now and trying to think back and draw the book together. I think we should pause here and think at the end here about where we have come and think about the more ultimate prospect that's offered here. We know that all Scripture is profitable for all the people of God, and yet we also know that we can, when we consider much of the New Testament, we're reading other people's mail, as in the case of First and Second Thessalonians. And it is easy enough... When we, when we do these in-depth explorations of these letters, passage by passage, that we can lose sight of the forest because we look at the trees, and the trees are great. But we need, in some ways, to keep perspective so that we don't lose sight of the value of what we've done working through all of this. So, we should remember that Paul wrote these letters to a, a fledgling church in Thessalonica who were likely coming under oppression. Paul was a pastor who was writing to struggling people who needed help getting their doctrine right and keeping their lives in godly order. And in light of that, if if you're someone who struggles to know God well or live your life purely for Him, then these letters have been for you. If we look back over these eight chapters, we can think of the many ways in which we are like the Thessalonians. We live in a culture that doesn't like the Christian gospel. Our context has essentially reverted back to a version of paganism that is not all that different from that which filled the ancient world. Paul did well to remind this church in 1 Thessalonians 1.1 to 4.12 that God had chosen them for salvation And was still working in them to bring them to deeper godliness. Further, 
the modern Christian church is by and large also confused about Christ's return and the resurrection, which has been a running theme throughout these books. Popular Christian thinking, like Greek philosophy, is often more fixated on a disembodied heaven in the clouds than on the resurrection of the body. And yet, the Apostles' Creed, the oldest of Christian confessions, does it not say, I believe in the life everlasting, the resurrection of the body? It does not say, I believe in the life of the soul and the life everlasting. As true as that might be, but I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Paul's enjoinders in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 to take the resurrection seriously as the hope in store for all Christians is a proper reminder for us too that God is not just going to save our souls, but will one day overwrite the curse of death in every aspect that robs us temporarily of our bodies. Do you see God's victory in that, Christians? Not one aspect of the curse remains. It is a beautiful thing that God would save our souls and bring us to heaven. God's glory is put on full display that He overwrites every aspect of the curse. And reunites us in the way that we were supposed to be. A union of body and soul. Many Christians today enjoy constructing fairly wild stories about the end of the world. Because, I think, honestly, because that in some ways is far more exciting than the ordinary Christian life of loving the Lord. As Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 3.12, doing their work quietly and earning their own living. That's that's not nearly as exciting as some of the things you might read about the overthrow of global economies and the like. But those fanciful accounts lose sight of Paul's pastoral purpose throughout these letters. The description of Christ's return in 1 Thessalonians and even the explanation of the man of lawlessness. In 2 Thessalonians 2, we're meant to bring further stability to the Christian life so that people could live in secure hope that their Lord and Savior would return for them and prove victorious no matter what trials they faced in this life. And with that, I think we come to the place where we should take our leave from these epistles. These, these letters placed a heavy emphasis on those events for which we wait in hope. And in that respect, very seriously, very literally, in that respect, we stand in the same place as the church in Thessalonica. These are our people, our family, and we wrestle with the same things in serving and pursuing the Lord as they did. We also are imperfect people rubbing against the grain of a difficult culture. And what are we to do? We're to fix our eyes on the horizon of history. We place no trust that our 
own cultures are even vaguely worth our efforts of supposedly redeeming them. From 2 Thessalonians 1, we know that they will be decimated with all vestiges of ungodliness from the face of the earth. And so we set our eyes upon the return of Christ. We look for Him not in fear as if this is a dreaded appearing, but in hope. Knowing for those of us who have faith in Jesus, those of us whom God has chosen to be His people and so has joined us to our reigning King who will come to install His kingdom in fullness. As we look forward to this Christ, the Son of God, died to cleanse His people from their sins, no matter the tumults of this world, we also claim Paul's final words here. Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times and in every way. Let's pray. Father God, it is easy as we read the Scriptures knowing that they were written for our benefit to lose sight of the people who read them first. And the reason why it's worth thinking about them is because we belong with them. They are our people. They are our family. And we are equally joined to Christ. And we see through these letters as they struggled to maintain their confidence in you, to keep their faith thriving, as they struggled to keep their doctrine clear and their lives on track, we stand shoulder to shoulder with them as sinners in need of grace. And so we pray that you would pour that grace out upon us as you had done for them. That you would preserve us as we look to Christ in his return, as we wait with endurance in the time between. We pray that you would be with us, that you would help us, that you would guide us, and that you, by setting the gospel before us continually, would grant to us peace at all times and in every way. And we pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.